Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Shaped Ideas Podcast. This is episode 16. It is May 2020, um, and we've got a doozy for you today. Um, Just a quick heads up, section 2 and 3 are going to get a little spicy. Um, So expect some cursing. Um, I've got some... Um, let's just do a full rundown now. I'll kind of elaborate. So in the first section today, we're going to talk about the Waco Netflix series. Well, originally the Paramount series and now it's streaming on Netflix. Um, I just finished it over the weekend and it's really good. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about the UFC fight night. Um, if I got time, depends on how much I want to talk about Waco. In section two, I'm going to talk about the CDC being absolute trash. I've got a reason article um, to talk about. And then I just have a little bit of um, some banter that I have to, uh, that I I think needs to be explained uh, regarding some CDC and FDA um, issues that I have. And then in section three, we're going to talk about a Wall Street Journal article that just honestly just got me really angry um it didn't offend me but it just got me like annoyed so i'm gonna go over that article and just kind of offer my two cents about the whole issue so without further ado let's just jump into it as always we're drinking Folgers coffee and it's delicious as always Alright, so Waco. So, I finished, I finished it uh, earlier this week. I didn't finish it over the weekend. I, I watched most of it over the weekend, and then I watched the last episode like on Tuesday or something, a couple days ago. So, it's really good. I recommend everybody watch it. Um, I don't... I don't really know a better way to just ex- explain my uh, enjoyment of it of, other than that, but so it's six episodes, and it just it kind of is a full roadmap of the whole siege from kind of start to finish. And uh, the first episode starts out just kind of introducing all the characters um, in the Branch Davidians, ran by David Koresh. Um, and so the first episode kind of just outlines how they do things. Um, what's going on on the inside and and um, just a lot of character and world building which is pretty nice I like that and then either at the end of the first episode or the beginning of the second episode I think it was the second episode they um, they start the siege and then the rest of the series is um, the standoff between the ATF and the FBI uh, against the branch division so it kind of goes over that whole thing. Um, before I go a little bit too far, just um, a quick heads up. And I think I said this uh, on last the last episode, but they definitely um, are biased. The producers or um, editors or whoever, they're definitely more biased towards the Branch Davidians. Um, 
than uh, than they are towards the FBI. Uh, more or less, they definitely show um, they definitely show Michael Shannon's character, uh, Gary Nessner, the negotiator, which by the way, I think um, made this show. Gary Nessner or uh, Michael Shannon, who um, played Gary Nessner in the in the show. He definitely made this series shine. Like there were times in the show that just his his acting was so good between his visual expressions and just some of his like physical movements during some very impactful scenes in the show. And there these are all very little things like him taking like a deep breath or like um, like swallowing, swallowing his throat spit or whatever you want to call it. Um, just like little things like that, or like there, there was a point in that specifically sticks out is when there was a very critical moment and he was talking to the FBI and um, he like he just stares at them and he like takes on this like face that just looks physically sick and it's just like a. It was, it was a level of acting that kind of wasn't carried by the rest of the crew. Um, and that's not entirely the, the crew's fault. I think he definitely had the more dramatic role compared to everyone else. But um, I uh, really, really liked Michael Shannon in the movie. So much so that I actually want to start watching other movies and shows that he's been in. Um, I know he was in The Shape of Water, which was a really bad movie about a fish um, having sex with a deaf woman <laughs> in the 50s so um, but he played he was really good in that movie too he tends to play he was a bad guy in that movie so he tends to play guys that like aren't likable and he kind of does that in this one just because he's working for the FBI but at the same time he's um, he's kind of looked at as on the branch Davidian side in a way, because he's really the one, he's like the only one in the FBI advocating for a peaceful resolution in this whole uh, thing, so. But, um, so just kind of critiquing it just a little bit. Oh, so back to the bias. So yeah, they definitely are a little more biased towards uh, the branch Davidians, which is fine. Um, I have no problems with them being a little more compassionate towards them rather than towards the FBI or thinking that the FBI is in the right because uh, just between like the show, the show stayed pretty on point with um, what happened more or less. Um, they're relatively accurate. So I don't mind that they paint the FBI in a bad light because it, it wasn't a good thing that they did. And um, there were a lot of bad things that happened and it was because they decided to take in a more aggressive route than they were and it ended up costing the lives of a ton of people so just before you go in there expect a little bit of bias more towards um branch davidians um and the reason i bring that up just a little bit um is because the, one of my like pretty much the only critique and it's a big one but my only critique about the show that I have is 
a little bit because of that bias. They paint them in a much better light, but they don't really go into detail about the fact that he was like stopping twelve year old girls. They don't they they there's like one conversation between two of his wives where um one of them talks about how she was having sex with him at twelve. So I wish they would have maybe gone a little more into detail or maybe brought out a little more just a little more emotion or, or something in regards to that because um that's something that was that he was doing that was pretty messed up but they kind of just gloss over it so that's really my only critique about this uh about this uh series but yeah other than that the series was amazing uh cinematically it was like really good just kind of again with what Michael Shannon, uh, him playing the lead negotiator Gary Nessner, um, it made the the series. It was tremendous. Um, so, um, but again, regardless of his acting, um, the acting around him was also very good. John Leguizamo um, is kind of like a little cameo in the, I believe the second episode, second and third, I think, something like that. He plays one of the, he plays a guy who moves in next to the the compound and like spies on him and tries to infiltrate him and stuff. And um, I won't give away too much of what his character does, but yeah, so he's in it too, and that was really cool. Um, yeah, and the actors and actresses, the um, the Branch Davidians, they were really good, especially in the last episode. They, they were it was very well um, acted and it was very cinematic, especially the last episode, but. So, so yeah, I definitely uh, recommend it to anyone who is uh, interested in learning a little bit more about that show, about uh, that show, about um, that tragedy, and wants, but also wants uh, something that's a little more on the fiction side, I guess. Um, because when you get a little more on the fiction side, it gets a little more cinematically um, enjoyable. Uh, instead of having to sit through a two-hour documentary, you can watch a six-hour series on this, and it might stretch the truth a little bit. It might um, leave a couple things out, but it's like exponentially more enjoyable to watch. So I, I definitely recommend it to anybody. Alright, we got a little bit more time before I want to jump into my big story of the day. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the UFC. <sighs> that coffee was good. Folgers, I'm looking for a sponsor. Hit me up. <laughs> so uh, UFC Fight Night, it was on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, the UFC is just going bananas this week. They had UFC 249 uh, last Saturday. And then they just had a UFC fight night with, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on his first name, but it's um, Lionheart Smith um, against a guy that I've never even heard of, Rexiera or something like that. Um, I, did, I ended up not watching the whole thing, so I'm not really going to go into depth about this. But um, yeah, and I didn't even hear about any of this. I, I got an, I got a, uh, an email and newsletter from the UFC saying that there's a fight night tonight, and I'm like, what? 
when is there ever a fight night on a Wednesday? But it makes a lot of sense, um, and I'll explain in a second. But yeah, so they got so the lineup this week is they just had one on Wednesday, and then they're gonna have another one on Friday, and then I think they have another one next Friday, if I'm not mistaken. And then like every, um, or sorry, not Friday, Saturday. So I think like every Saturday going forward, they're just gonna plow through all of these fight nights. Um, and I think the reason that is, is, and I think this is also a reason why the UFC was trying so hard to um, keep the UFC going during the quarantine. And a, a lot of people gave them flag for this, but I don't think they understand really what was going on um, in the background. So the UFC signed a deal with ESPN. And in that contract, Dana White and the UFC have to put on a certain amount of fight nights every year. If you cancel two months worth of fight nights and the ESPN says, we don't care, you still need to put on the same amount this year that your contract tells you or there's going to be some issues, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So then you're kind of forced to push these fights through despite the quarantine because you know you won't be able to make you you know there's a good chance you might not be able to meet the correct amount before the deadline because I'm sure it takes just a ton of work to get this stuff booked um, to get the commissioners to sign off because I know the commissioners are always a pain in the ass they're crotchety old boxing fans that don't understand MMA so they give MMA the run around and it's just a big political pissing match if you want my cynical opinion about it. But, um, but, but anyway, so, but I mean, on the flip side, silver lining from this is great for the fans because it was, it was really fun to watch. I watched probably um, maybe an hour or two, I think, on Wednesday. Um, so, but it was really fun to watch. Uh, the fights were really enjoyable. It's uh, it's kind of funny to see um, people fight in to to an empty arena. The uh, main the main event with uh, I think it's Anthony Smith, I think is his name, and uh, the guy he was fighting, I saw on Twitter the following morning about <laughs> some stuff that they were talking to each other. And there was a point where Anthony Smith was um, like in the turtle position, covering his face in the back of his head, and the guy's on top of him pounding his face, and uh, Anthony Smith is bleeding. And you hear Anthony's Anthony Smith's opponent saying, um, like something to the effect of, "It's just business, man. It's not personal," or something along those lines. And Anthony Smith just comes back with, "It is what it like. Hey, it is what it is." And it's just really funny. You just got these two guys that like, there's no, um, there's no hard feelings or anything. And like, dude, like, I actually feel sorry that he's just whooping this guy's ass. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of funny. I think that's why, I think that's why I'm so bummed that the uh, Nurmagomedov Ferguson fight got canceled because it would have been so crazy to listen to Habib just jaw jack at Tony if he's in a dominant position, which he would have been. Because, like, in the McGregor fight, there was so much hostility towards McGregor that, like, when he was whooping his ass and ground and pounding him, you could literally hear, 
the mics from the cameras picked up on Habib, like saying, let's talk now. You you talk, let's talk now. As he's punching him in the face, because of McGregor's, all of his trash talk, just whooping him in the face and just yelling at him, let's talk now. It was it was hilarious. So it would have been really funny to watch um, watch them fight into an empty room because you definitely would have been able to hear every word they said. All right, let's uh, let's jump into this reason article that I have pulled up, and it's by Eric Boehm. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Probably not, to be honest, but so the article is called, or is headlined, Mission Creep and Wasteful Spending Left the CDC Unprepared for an Actual Public Health Crisis, Spending Nearly 14 Times as Much on the CDC as We Did in 1987 Did Not Apparently Help the Agency Combat the Biggest Disease Threat America Has Faced in a Century. Just, I want that to sink in a little bit. We have increased the CDC's budget exponentially over the last 40 years, and we have nothing to show for it. And that is on full display during this pandemic. They are the center for disease control. And this disease has run roughshod over our entire country with major hotspots killing thousands of people. Over the past three decades, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, has seen its taxpayer-funded budget doubled, then doubled again, then doubled again, and, and then nearly doubled once more over the past three decades. <coughs> Sorry, I coughed. But spending nearly 14 times as much as we did in 1987 on the agency whose mission statement says it saves lives and protects people from health threats did not apparently help the CDC combat the emergence of the biggest disease threat America has faced in a century. In fact, a new report argues inflating the CDC's budget may have weakened the agency's ability to handle its core responsibility by giving rise to mission creep and bureaucratic malice. Or malaise? I don't know. The CDC devolved into an agency incapable of adequately addressing the serious threats posed by infectious disease, particularly novel diseases for which there is little information about risk, spread, and treatment, says Michael or, uh, Michelle Minton, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a free market think tank. Minton is the author of a newly released study showing just how far the CDC has strayed from its core mission. In addition to combating dangerous infectious diseases like HIV and malaria, the CDC now also studies alcohol and tobacco use, athletic injuries, traffic incidents, and gun violence. While those, while those things can indeed be important factors to public health, Minton notes, they do not seem to fall within the agency's original mission. And again, the original mission is to save lives and protect people from health threats. 
continuing on. They do, however, explain why the CDC's budget has ballooned from $590 million in 1987 to more than $8 billion last year. If the agency had grown with inflation since 1987, it would have a budget of about $1.3 billion today. Total federal spending, meanwhile, has grown from a hair over a trillion dollars in 1987 to $4.4 trillion last year which means that the CDC's budget has grown faster than the government's overall spending. Has all that extra funding made America safer? In 2019, the CDC spent $1.1 billion on its National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, which focuses on ailments like heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. The CEI reports notes that there are at least 10 other federally funded agencies mostly within the National Institute of Health, the NIH, engaged in similar health and wellness research. And that's basically saying there's so many other agencies, and they're federally funded agencies, that are working on this. Why are they putting their money into it? That's what I get out of that paragraph, at least. Back to the article. And I'm going to go over this article in full, just because I think it's, or at least mostly in full, just because I think it's very pertinent and um, it's something that needs to be said. Just a uh, side note. Instead of spending billions of dollars in recent years to duplicate work being done by other federal agencies, hindsight now suggests that the CDC should have spent more time and money researching emergent influenza-like infections, infectious diseases, a project that received just $185 million in funding last year. Again, their mission statement is to save lives. And I need to go back and read it again. Where is this? To save lives and save lives and protect people from health threats. And they only spent $185 million of their $8 billion budget on it. Or at least on that infectious disease. I don't know. So, just that's for them not research, not spending as much research. You think you think they would put more money into it? That was a bad sentence. But what I was trying to say is this: you'd think if that's what their statement is, and they want to save lives, and they want to prevent threats and like fight against them, they'd spend a little bit more money working on influenza-like symptoms or infectious diseases. Because that is one of the big killers in America, is, is flu. That's why COVID, or SARS-2, again, it's SARS-2. That's why they're compared to the flu so much, because the deaths are very similar. So, not that I'm saying that it's like the flu. I try not to compare the two. They're very different. And I have a, if you want to go back in the, the episode catalog, you can find the episode where I talk about it. There's actually a really good Wall Street Journal article that really analyzes the numbers um, of COVID-19 and the flu, and then also talks about um, why you shouldn't compare the two or why you could compare the two. So it's really good. I recommend you go back and listen to that portion of that episode. I can't remember off the top of my head which episode it was, but um, it was really good. I recommend uh, going back and uh, listening to it. But back to the article, 
Instead, the CDC was doing things like spending $1.75 million on the creation of a Hollywood liaison whose job was to help movies and TV shows write more accurate storylines about infectious diseases. Now, thankfully, that's not a lot of money um, of their overall budget, but that's still stupid and bullshit, and they shouldn't be wasting money on that. A 2007 report published by the office of late Senator Tom Coburn, uh, Republican of Oklahoma, found that the CDC funded the position with money originally earmarked for combating bioterrorism and appointed a semi-retired employee to run the office. So that $1.7 million was originally earmarked for combating bioterrorism. That's what the money was supposed to go towards. The same report calls out the CDC for lavish spending, lavish spending on a new headquarters and visitor center that opened in 2006. The agency blew through more than $10 million in new office furniture and built a $200,000 fitness center and $30,000 sauna on the site. Damn, I wish I could have a $30,000 sauna. Holy shit. Again, this is going to be pretty expletive, um, pretty expletive filled. It would be one thing if the CDC was merely wasting money on saunas and duplicative research, but the agency has also been pushing agendas that were counterproductive to public health. In the months before the coronavirus pandemic hit, the CDC was on the front lines. I, I fucking hate the front lines. I hate quick side rant. I hate that people are calling this the front lines. That nurses and doctors are on the front lines of this war on SARS-2. It's not a war. A real war is people shooting at you. I'm tired of this hyperbolic, over-the-top, grandiose thing. It's not a war. You know what happens in wars? Millions of people die. This isn't a war. And saying that these nurses and doctors are on the front lines and that they're heroes. I'm not discounting the fact that they're that they're heroes because they are they are saving lives. But you're doing your job. Like that's your job. Your job is to help save people and keep them alive. Stop acting like you're some like high and mighty person because you're doing your job when this pandemic hit. God, I just, I'm just like so tired of it, of of this like egotistical pissing match that people have about what's going on. And like, do we have to massage everybody's ego about all this? Anyway, back to the art. I'm just going to reread that. That whole thing. It would be one thing if the CDC was merely wasting money on saunas and duplicative research, but the agency has also been pushing agendas that were counterproductive to public health. In the months before the coronavirus SARS-2 pandemic hit, the CDC was on the front lines of a war on vaping that came in response to a brief panic over deaths caused by black market THC vape pens. Even though it was clear early on that vaping-related lung injuries overwhelmingly involved black market cannabis products, the CDC 
repeatedly intimated that legal they repeat they repeatedly intimated that legal nicotine delivering e-cigarettes might kill you reasons jacob salam reported in march that message endangered public health by implying that people teenagers as well as adults would be better off smoking which is demonstrably not true The nonsensical war on vaping may have tarnished the CDC's credibility on the eve of a crisis that would require the public to trust policymakers. And that's very true because I think a lot of people see through that bullshit. They see that people that that these companies and CDC and the FDA are push trying to push people more towards cigarettes and tobacco rather than towards alternatives. And when the coronavirus did hit, the CDC only confirmed that it should not be trusted to make important decisions by for, important decisions by forbidding private labs from developing tests for COVID-19. The federal agency's monopoly on testing supplies produ- produced inaccurate tests that had to be discarded en masse. The initial testing delay has certainly cost lives. It is also at least partially to blame for the severe quarantine policies that have tipped the American economy into a deep recession. Without adequate testing, there was little else for policymakers to do except close the country in the hopes of slowing the disease's spread. So ultimately, like unabashedly, the CDC is to blame to why we have a lockdown as long as we do, because they're the ones who fucked up and didn't allow testing kits to be produced in mass. And they created themselves, and that created a lot of false positives, a lot of fake tests, a lot of broken tests, and it took them way too long to get to people. And the quantity that they actually got to people was garbage. It was horseshit. And that pushed us back weeks into this pandemic. Weeks where we could have been testing people, getting people locked down, figuring out how this was moving and how it was spreading. And it set us back two weeks which is the exact incubation period before people start showing symptoms, if they have it. The CDC should have done better. Given the resources allocated to it during the past few decades, that those resources were squandered is a matter of life and death for many Americans, and the people responsible should be held to account. It'll never happen, unfortunately. They'll never be held to account. The CDC is just gonna keep moving. And no, the CDC's budget was not con- cut by the Trump administration. And this was something that kind of pushed, put me back a bit because I could have sworn they were cut, but I guess not. As the agency's defenders have claimed, although Trump did call for, the, for budget cuts to the CDC in each of his pr- proposed budgets since taking office, Congress never approved those proposals. Indeed, Congress has been stuffing more money down the CDC's throat on an almost annual basis for the past three decades with little to show for it when the need truly arose. And that's the end of the article. So yeah, I um, I could have sworn that the Trump administration put um, cut the CDC and I thought that was gonna be, I always thought that was like one of the political talking points at the beginning of this, that it was Trump's fault because they cut the CDC um, 
CDC funding, which would have given them more money to do what they needed to to fight this, but I guess not. So yeah, it's just effing Congress's fault. They gave them, they, they didn't allow Trump to cut their spending and they still mismanaged it really badly. All right. So I want to go back and talk about the war on vaping. And like I said before, I'm about the front lines and all that bullshit. I, I, I hate that people say there's a war on something. Because it's just, it's so, it puts emphasis on something that doesn't need to be emphasized. And it's just a very emotional buzzword or buzz phrase that people use to, like, put more impact into their sentence and into their narrative that they're trying to push. So, I'm going to bring up a little bit um, of some stuff just from my experience with this whole war on vaping. Um, so I think as I've talked about before, I used to work for a e-cigarette manufacturer. I was uh, in their marketing department and I was fresh out of college. And this is kind of how I really learned about how disgusting politics were and uh, people in politics. So when I was working for the vaping manufacturer, I was given a crash course on all things vaping um, and smoking because everyone who was there were um, former smokers that now vape. There's a thing called the mass settlement agreement that happened in the 90s. And basically what that did is it, um, it imposed massive taxes, massive taxes on um, cigarettes, massive taxes and restrictions on cigarettes across the board. And that's why they're so expensive now. And those taxes go to different stuff. Um, a portion goes to like nine different um, associations, like the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association, um, the project, the team project or whatever that's called. Um, you always see it, it's the word project and it looks like it's stamped in braille with the the orange background or whatever and it's always talks about um, kids smoking and how it's bad for them um, it, their money goes to that a couple other um, associations that, that study these diseases and stuff um, so and then the taxes go into um, yearly budgets for states So part of the mass settlement agreement was big tobacco companies like Philip Morris and Riled, or ugh, God, I was doing so well through that CDC article and I just had to bomb on my own, my own cliff notes. <laughs> so Philip Morris and uh, Reynolds company, there we go. Uh, those two companies basically make up the whole uh, market of cigarettes today. Like more or less, there's a couple other companies, but more or less, those are the two big ones. And they own the subsidiaries or the other the other corporations that are um, that own other ones. So they basically make up almost one hundred percent of the the cigarette market. Um, the MSA required 
these two companies and companies like them to incur the massive taxes on their products and that tax rent and that tax revenue went to respective states where the cigarettes were bought so the cities and states and like i said this happened in the late 90s so these cities and these states have been receiving tax money off of cigarette sales for over 20 years now so they've gotten accustomed to having this money come in every single year and it's gotten so much so that uh, they've become so accustomed to that California has basically already spent like the next few years or more I can't remember um, this was a couple years ago when I was learning all this but at the time California had like multiple years worth of cigarette tax money already they already used it like it was already allocated they already spent it basically they already spent the, the money that they were going to be getting in each year so and I'll explain why that's so bad in just a second let me get another sip of coffee Sorry for like the five seconds of that air. <laughs> Just trying to make sure that I stay on top. This is very, this is a very important message that I want to get out. Or a very important realization that I had that I want to um, put out to everybody. So, like places like California, and I'm only picking on California because that was the big one that I that I heard. I'm sure there's other states that uh, that have done this. So they spent, they basically already spent their tax money that they're supposed to get. They don't have the money yet, but they've already spent it. And they've spent it on roads, public health, whatever else they want to spend it on. Um, I don't know the logistics of it. I can't remember. So now these places like California need people to keep buying cigarettes. Because the state has already spent the money that they're going to get from those cigarette taxes. And now comes vaping in the past five or ten years. And it's really just gained popularity since like in the past half decade, I would say. Um, so enter, so now enters vaping, a product that has successfully gotten thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people to quit smoking and either go entirely to vaping or just quit vaping entirely. That now poses a huge threat, not only to cigarette companies who spend millions of dollars on lobbying in these states but also on states who have already spent the money they are expecting to receive from the mass settlement settlement agreement taxes. So this means states now have an incentive to push the narrative that vaping is less safe than cigarettes because they get kickbacks from the cigarette companies through cigarette sales of the or through cigarette taxes of each sale. So cities and states are now incentivized to push the narrative that vaping is more dangerous, that vaping isn't better, that you sh- like you should just quit smoking entirely, you shouldn't vape, because pe- because they know they're being disingenuous. They know that people, if you don't give them an alternative to smoking that's easier than quitting smoking, they won't do it. They'll just keep smoking until it kills them. 
people who smoke, they don't fucking care. They will keep smoking unless you give them a very easy alternative to help them get off of cigarettes. They will not do it. You can ask any smoker. Like my mom smoked for 10 years before she had, before I was born. And I don't know how she did it. She said the moment she found out that she was pregnant with me, she quit smoking cold turkey. I don't know how she did it. But she says, I could go back to cigarettes today. She's like, I could start. And that was 25 years ago. And my boss at the time, he told me like he, he got night sweats. He would wake up in the middle of the night. The cravings would just be intense. Like, and I'm, you know, I'm sure he's not alone because he smoked for like 30 years or something crazy. And I heard that from a lot of other people who smoke. That it just like the, the pain that people had to endure to get off of smoking. And I'm talking more mentally than physically because the... The physical aspect of quitting cigarettes it really only lasts about 72 hours. After that, it's it's all mental. That was a big marketing pitch that I always pushed about about cigarettes was was that. But uh, so yeah, um, let's jump back on topic because I don't want to go too far because I have this other article that I want to talk about that it's that also. Gets me very heated and annoyed. <laughs> so, so on top of that, on top of the the states getting cigarette tax money um, and being incentivized to sell more cigarettes, on top of that, the mass settlement agreement required, like I said earlier, required cigarette companies to give money to organizations such as like it's like the like the five limb associations or something like that. So, like the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association. Um, and there's a bunch of others, but those are the two big ones that I remember. Um, and these associations are not doing well. They're they're bleeding money. They're they're not obviously they're not profitable. Um, they're a nonprofit. I I think I can't don't quote me on that. But so they're not really doing well, and they're kind of bleeding money. And they're not getting donations and, and stuff like that. So they're now kind of a little dependent on like these subsidies from big tobacco, these taxes. So it just seems kind of odd that it just seems like a, a conflict of interest, like a deal with the devil, ultimately. Like this mass settlement agreement, I think, did way more harm than good uh, with the fight against tobacco. I call it a fight. It's not a war. It's a fight. It's um, this fight that you have against people smoking cigarettes. And I don't really care anymore. <laughs> I cared when I worked here, but I when I used to work at the vape company, but I don't anymore. Like, if you want to smoke cigarettes, whatever. But, um, it's your life. You decide how you want to... You decide if you want to end it prematurely, I guess. But... Um... I think this mass settlement agreement did way more harm than good. It... It incentivizes these states to... It incentivizes these states to... push tobacco... And they're not going to push it outright. They'll. That's why you see all. That's. This was the original. This is where I wanted to end the original. The first point about the the states. This is why you see so many states and so many cities um, pushing up the tobacco purchasing age, which is going to in effect push up the vaping tax. 
or the fate being aged to 21. And then on top of that, you see like other stuff like California. I, I can't remember if it was all California, if it was just one of the cities, but either a city in California or the whole state uh, banned the sale of flavors. So the only flavor you can get in e-cigarettes and vaping is tobacco flavor and menthol. And one of the big selling points to vaping is that people can get their nicotine dose without those garbage flavors. And that's like a big selling point that got people to quit smoking, or excuse me, uh, to quit smoking to begin with. So like they do these things saying like, oh, we're doing that because we don't like, we see, we see that it's dangerous despite that there's other um, studies to the opposite. But um, they they do these, they make these laws and they make these restrictions and they, they do it under the guise of public health, but to be fully transparent, they're not. They're, they're doing it because they need more tax money to come in from people purchasing cigarettes. So they do these things against vaping because vaping, I don't think it's into law yet so it's not being taxed as high as cigarettes are so they're not it's not profitable and not enough people do it yet there's still millions and millions and millions of smokers compared to the maybe a couple million vapors so they know that it's just it's more profitable to just keep pushing vaping down compared to um providing an alternative to vape to uh to smoking so but then uh, coming back around to the organizations that get money from the MSA, um, it's like a, it's a deal with the devil, honestly. You're being, you're being given money to operate, and it's probably a large amount of your budget, a large percentage of your budget, is coming from the very product that you're trying to have go out of business. So... Like the devil basically owns these organizations. The states, due to their reliance on the funding that they receive from the MSA, from Big Tobacco, these states' reliance on the tax money gives Big Tobacco leverage to lobby for less cigarette regulations and more vaping regulations and restrictions. And that's partially why you see such, uh, such strict laws regarding vaping in California, because they need that money. They don't care about public health. They don't want, or uh, they want and need more tax money from cigarettes. So that's what they're going to do. And all this, all this leads to, um, all this leads organizations and states to peddle narratives that vaping is unsafe and worse than cigarettes. And it's not. Um, comparatively, I'm saying, like if you don't smoke and you don't vape and you decide to take a vaping, it's worse for you. But if you're looking at it as opposed to cigarettes, yes, it's a safer alternative to cigarettes. So it leads organizations and states to peddle narratives that vaping is unsafe and worse than cigarettes. The reason vaping is so demonized in this country is not because it's unsafe. It's demonized because we as Americans and our government has grown reliant on the taxes and subsidies that are received 
through this MSA agreement with the Dragon. And I'm going to end it right there. And we'll jump into the uh, next article that's going to get me all angry. <laughs> I just really wanted to get that out. Um, because no one knows or understands how that works or where that comes from. Um, so I just wanted to bring that out again so people understand why there's so much animosity towards vaping. That's why. And it's a lot of money. Like these are multi-billion dollar companies. The cigarette uh, companies are. So the, the money that these that these states get is probably in the millions when it comes to tax dollars. They get millions of dollars in tax money off of cigarettes. So when you have vaping come in and hurt that bottom line, people people don't want that. All right, so moving on. I got a Wall Street Journal article from uh, from the weekend paper, I believe. Let's see. Edition. It made the front page, a little tidbit, but it made the front page. Um, oh, it was the Wednesday edition. Anyway, so the article is called Runners Rile Walkers Over Mask Manners. Uncovered, Uncovered Joggers Draw Fire. Give me some distance, people say. And this struck a chord with me because I am a runner and I run a lot. Uh, last year I ran a thousand miles in the year. Um, I'm definitely not on track to hit that this year, but <laughs> regardless, I'm a big runner. I've ran six marathons. Um, oh God, I don't even know how many half marathons, 5Ks, all that jazz. I've got medals just hanging on a big clip in my, in my closet. I don't even have them out, but anyway, um, let's jump right in. It's by uh, Sumaki ready i think is maybe how you say that sorry i'm butchering your name sir or man um gretchen peters a 62 year old singer songwriter used to walk her puppy every day on a trail in seagrove beach florida at first during the coronavirus outbreak she stepped into driveways or ducked down side roads to dodge runners they came up from behind and passed me sometimes just a foot away and you read that and you're like, okay, lady. Okay, I see where you're going with this. More recently, she got fed up. I started yelling at people, she says. I just yelled, give me some distance here. She's not usually one to shout in public. And her first target shot her a dirty look. But it was cathartic. One sec, I want to get this in there. I scroll down all the way to the next page. I did it a couple of times, she said, and I will admit it felt pretty good. This lady's a bitch. She is trying to take less crowded streets now. Things have unfortunately gotten worse in the last week or so as Florida has started opening up, she says. We're seeing more people down here, many of whom seem to be in vacation mode. As, as Americans battle over reopening, few targets have provoked as much ire as the unmasked runner. 
the reason this makes me so angry, and it shouldn't make me angry, but this affects me. It thankfully hasn't affected me yet, but it's probably going to in the future. And this is probably why I should start running early in the morning again. Have you ever tried running with a mask on? Just try it. Go for a run. Maybe a jog wouldn't be that bad. Go for a hard run with a mask on. Run many miles, multiple miles with a mask on. Run until you have sweat dripping down your face and that thing is sticking to you and borderline suffocating you. Do that and tell me how easy it is. Tensions have simmered about runners breathing heavy as they whiz past bystanders ever since social distancing took hold. Recently, talk of ending lockdowns, warmer weather, and quarantine fatigue have lured more people outside. It feels like living in a zombie movie here. Again, with the hyperbolic, over-the-top bullshit statements from these people. They're running at you, open-mouthed, without masks on. It's like playing COVID chicken in the street says Nicole George, a 39-year-old cartoonist and podcast host in Los Angeles. She changed her dog walking route to avoid runners, sometimes going around my half block 14 times in a row just to get my dog some exercise. Go fuck yourself, lady. I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of this. I don't understand it. People talk about the social distancing bullshit. Like, where did this arbitrary six feet come from? They thought that's how far you needed to stay away from someone so the virus wouldn't spread. There's already been studies and scientists that have come out and said that it can travel up to 27 feet. Which means, by proxy, six feet doesn't fucking matter. Doesn't do anything. Does nothing. <sighs> back to the article. Recently, she ventured back to her usual route and was aghast at the number of unmasked runners and cyclists. Where is your mask, germ pod? She scolded them. I just imagined one of those diagrams of all the germ clouds coming out of their unmasked mouth, she said. You are gross, lady. God, like, who are you to just judge and just direct vitriol towards someone who's just trying to be outside and exercise? Los Angeles County's official guidance to runners is that they should put on masks when they come near other people and try to run in less crowded places. So what happens when that doesn't work? So what happens when all the dog moms uh, decide that they want to walk down the walk down the street that you're planning on running on? Like, why is it all on us? Why is it all on runners? 
I don't understand. Like, I don't think people think this shit through. What I mean is, take less crowded streets. Like, what are you supposed to do? Drive your running route to make sure that no one's walking their dog during that time? Like, I don't understand. Like, where, like, is that, is that where we, is that what you need to do? Do you need to drive the running route that you want to take to make sure that it's not as crowded? Like, what do you expect from runners? Like, how, how much do you want them to tiptoe around these people? Like, it's just, it's frustrating. I don't, I don't get why people are being this, I am annoyed that people are being this annoying. Back to the article. Last week, Massachusetts started reopening everyone or requiring everyone to wear face coverings when they can't maintain social distance or face a fine up to $300. Jesus. That's a little over the top, but I want to send a special message to runners and cyclists and cyclists said Boston mayor, Martin Walsh at a news conference. I can't tell you how many runners and bikers I see breathing heavily and blowing right past people with no face covering. This is not considerate to the people around you, and I understand why it's making people angry. Why? Why it's making people angry? Stay inside then. If you're that fucking concerned, if you're that worried, stay inside. Quit bothering us. We all share the sidewalk. Why don't you get mad at other people that are walking their dog? Like, why is it always runners? I like, and I'm seeing it more and more. And I don't know if it's just because I'm part of a lot of running communities, so I see a lot of stuff about it, but people are being lambasted about it. It's just ridiculous. Like what, every single person, every single person who walks their dog has a mask on? Like why? Like, why is this always directed towards runners? And again, like, if you're that concerned, don't go outside. Like, if you're that fearful for your life over this thing, don't go outside. Because you're burdening everybody. So go away. Runners say... They are often being unfairly targeted. Melissa Sullivan, a 44-year-old distance runner in Boston, says popular routes have been packed lately as the weather has warmed up, but it isn't just runners. It's always the runners that get singled out, says Ms. Sullivan, a human resource consultant who runs 4 to 15 miles about four times a week. I've personally been wearing a mask, and it's awful to try and run with a mask, but I don't want to get heckled on the street. Yeah, like, when did it become okay to do that? When did it become okay to harass people on the street? Like, I thought that was a no-no. I thought that was socially unacceptable to harass people. So why is it suddenly okay now? Oh, that's right. The goalposts have moved. That's right. 
Oh, I understand. No. Back to the article. In New York City, Allison Broder, Broder, a 34-year-old travel blogger, has no qualms about public shaming. She watched in horror last week as warmer weather and quarantine fatigue brought out a swell of unmasked runners. She herself went out running but wearing but wearing a face covering. She says she came home and decided to take action. On May 5th, she camped out in Riverside Park with a homemade sign saying, runners and cyclists, where is your mask? You need to wear one too, with a bunch of exclamation points. She says she got a lot of thumbs up and thank yous from runners and walkers alike. Still, she says she saw a line of about five runners and bikers without face covering. They weren't with each other, she says. How are so many people out here, out there without masks? Comedian Seth Meyers, comedian should be in there, folks, weighed in recently. Hey, joggers, it's scary enough being out in the world right now without one of you, without one of you stomping from behind, panting and gasping. It's like a horror movie, except Jason has the decency to wear a mask. And okay, that was kind of funny. So maybe he's a comedian. <laughs> but that was kind of funny. But like, the sentiment is so gross. Like, I, the sentiment is really gross. And everyone's talking out of both sides of their mouth, and it's getting annoying. Let's just finish up this article, and I'll kind of give my final thoughts on this. Some runners, though I've had enough, I'm, awful, I'm awfully sick of the Let's shame joggers for not wearing masks, tweeted Sarah Brown, a 38-year-old runner who lives in Arlington, Virginia, and wears a mask. I think people are misunderstanding the health benefits of running, explains Miss Brown, who has been an avid runner for 12 years and runs 3 to 10 miles, 5 to 6 days a week. It's for emotional and mental health and well-being, which are really important issues right now. Health, expert, health experts say it makes sense for runners and cyclists who are moving fast and breathing hard to try to leave more than six feet of space when passing other people and not to run or ride directly behind other exercisers. When you're running, you're breathing harder, you're taking deeper breaths, says Ebbing Lutenbach, chief of, chief of infectious diseases at Penn Medicine. So if you are COVID infected and shedding, it may make it more likely it may make it more likely to spread more than six feet. Still she says the risks of potential transmission are low. Are low. For some, the pandemic is only exacerbating tensions that already were there. People resented runners before the pandemic for their stupid dedication tweeted Mark Thompson, a 60-year-old cartoonist based in Minneapolis. Ooh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. But right now, what you've always done, or, uh, but right now, what you've always done that made you feel you were inferior to them is a thing you can hold over them, he explained. I'm stuck in my house. I'm watching TV. I'm eating junk food. I'm the hero. I can feel superior. And that is kind of the crux of this thing. I think there's two different... Um, I think there's two different lines of thinking about this. You've got, or um, I think there's two different reasons why people are shaming people for this. 
in what is that one right there is I'm doing my part by sitting inside. I'm doing my part by sitting inside, eating junk food, sitting on the couch, like making unhealthy decisions, even though almost every state says you should go outside and get exercise during this time, not only for your physical health, but for your mental health. But people are like, oh, I'm staying inside. I'm doing my part. I'm being a lazy sack of shit, but I'm doing my part. I'm better than you, you runner, the person that I hate because you're mentally stronger than I am. I think that's one level of thinking that people have towards this. And I think the other one is just, just aggression that like people have lost their mind during this time. Like what happened to personal freedom? Like what happened to like our ability and our right to go outside and do things? Like, don't get mad at us. Don't get mad at runners. It's not our fault the sidewalks aren't fucking big enough. They're not wide enough to, for six feet. I'm sorry. That just is how it is. Like, you can't change that. You want us to duck into the street? Go fuck yourself. That's not our problem. To deal with your problem. I'm, I'm so tired of. Like runners just getting. Like. Just pushed around. Like runners have always been. Kind of seen as just. Like idiots. And like fringe. Like crazy people. So they've always been kind of in that thing always been kind of in that weird like cosm of just constantly being teased and laughed at and all that stuff and it's it gets my blood boiling to say the least <laughs> and the other thing i think about is like why why is this our problem why I already said that. The other thing that I think about is this. We use, and I say we just because I'm a runner, and I'm a big runner. I run a lot. I would say I run, well, right now I run probably three, four times a week. Um, usually around 21 miles a week, something like that. But before all this happened, I probably ran... Oh God, I ran six days a week. Like a total of like, I don't know, 35 miles, something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, doesn't matter. But um, like we use this stuff way more than you guys do. We use the park sidewalks. We use the trails. We use the paths. We use all that stuff way more than you do. And it means more to us than to you. So why are, again, why are we being singled out? Like we're the people, like the government is hoping to be on those trails because we use them more than you do. That's just, that's just how it is. You can go to any trail 
and you will probably see more runners than you will see people walking on. And I don't know if it's different in other states, but that's how it is in Minnesota, with the exception of like parks, like state parks, but like just the the normal trails around that like connect cities and like the regional trails that we have in Minnesota. I run on all of them and I see way more joggers and runners than I do see people walking. This is just such bullshit. Like when did it become okay to just browbeat someone for exercising their their right to go outside and go for a run? Like I'm sorry that someone uh, didn't stay six feet apart from one person. But this is just such horse shit for someone to be singling out runners for this. Like, I, well, and then even on top of this, okay, so if we wear a mask, suddenly it's fine. Suddenly we can run up right next to you. Like, I, where is the line? Where, where, when does it become better? When are you okay to stop bullying us and to stop harassing us? Suddenly we put on a mask and you're finally okay with it? No, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to say we have to put a mask on. After we do that, you're going to say we have to stay six feet apart. And then that's going to be where the loophole ends because that'll never happen because the sidewalks aren't wide enough and there's too, there's probably going to be too many people. And then they got you. Like the sidewalks when I lived in St. Paul, Sidewalks are maybe three feet wide, maybe. So it's just this never ending cycle. Like they're just gonna keep using these hyperbolic, grandiose statements and they're gonna demonize people. Like, I like how it's okay to demonize runners, but you can't demonize other people. Like, I just, I don't get why it's okay to harass and subject one group of people from another group of people. Like, why is that okay? Like, it just seems very hypocritical for people to be doing that. And you all know what I'm talking about. All right, we went way over time and I got really angry. <laughs> so I'll just leave it with this, uh, with that article. Um, just be a good person, be a nice person. Don't think you're better than anyone else. Try to live with a little bit of perspective and try and think through some of these problems. What do you want the solution to be? And what is going to be the end intent? Because if you want people to wear masks, you're like inconveniencing them to a large degree. And I know because I run in the wintertime. And in the wintertime, if I don't wear a mask, I get a lot of throat irritation because of how cold the air is. So wearing a mask helps with the cold air going into my throat and my lungs. And I can't run as good as I, I do during the summer because I have to wear a mask and I, it's harder to get oxygen to your lungs. So it's frustrating. 
So like think through it is what I'm saying and, and, and think through the solutions that you have. Okay, you want all the runners to wear masks? Okay. Are you happy now? Because yes, then okay, we've maybe reached a, a conclusion and we can, we can do that maybe. But I just don't believe that that's how it would go down. Because people who bitch and moan and want these things to change and are okay just blaming people and, and shaming people out in public like this for just exercising their own right to just go for a run. And I try not to use the word shame because like everyone can do that. But like it's just I, the reason I, I bring it up so many times because the people who 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 do this are upset that other people get shamed for other things. And the thing that I just, I, I think about in my head is fat shaming. Like I'm willing to bet the people who are shaming these runners don't like it when people fat shame other people. So that kind of shame isn't okay, but you shaming runners, it is okay. Like either all of it's okay or none of it's okay, but you have to pick. You can't cherry pick certain groups of people that it's okay to make fun of or okay to shame or okay to harass, but it's not okay to do it to other groups of people. Either all of it's okay or none of it's okay. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> I don't know a good way to segue out of that, but we're just going to jump into the ending credits because I went like 10 minutes over time, maybe a little bit more. So this is going to be a longer episode, obviously, if you've made it this far. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, this has been the Shaped Ideas Podcast with your host, Sam. Um, you can find this podcast pretty much anywhere podcasts are distributed. Uh, Spotify, the TuneIn app, uh, Stitcher, Google and Apple Podcasts. Um, I haven't started putting them on YouTube quite yet. I'm still working on that. Um, you can find them in all the smaller ones as well. And then we have a Facebook and Instagram at Shaped Ideas Podcast. And then we have a Twitter which I'm fairly active on actually, um, and it's Shaped Ideas. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear your guys' feedback, um, especially on this, because I did get a little heated, so I'd be interested to see if anyone's gonna get heated back at me about this, but um, yeah. Again, thank you all so much for listening. This has been the Shaped Ideas Podcast, and I will see you all next time. <laughs>